You know, we've been uh, really going through the book of Luke, so turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to continue on with the story, really one of the most amazing stories that's ever been told, and it's the beginning of the story. So I want you to get your, um, get your Bible out, get a little pen and paper if you can. Those movie seats are really comfortable. And if you're tired, you can tend to just kind of lay back and just kind of listen, and I guarantee you will fall asleep. If you're not engaging, reading, writing something, and so, um, so join me in reading, continuing to read the story about Jesus coming to earth. Of course, we've read about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and how they conceived a child late in life and how it was a miracle from God and that was a sign of what was to come. And then the angel appears to Mary, appears to her and says, I'm going to give you a child and he will be great. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be the Messiah. He will save your people from their sins. And then as Mary accepts that and says, may it be to me as you have said. In a servant's heart, she goes forward and, and Joseph, of course, goes through a very difficult moment there as she tells him what's happening. But Mary and Joseph find their way to Bethlehem and and they find a place to stay. There's, Bethlehem is full of people, and they, they have trouble finding a place where they can be. And they, they, they find a, a, a stable or a, maybe a carved-out um, cave, or maybe it was a, a dwelling where the animals stayed on the bottom, people stayed on the top. And we, as we looked at that, and we, we, we looked at their situation and their story and realized that that God had promised them some wonderful things. God had actually said through the angel to Mary, he said, you are blessed and highly favored. Everybody say that with me. Blessed and highly favored. And yet here at the moment of the manger, the manger did not represent exactly what they thought it might be, what they thought Jesus might mean. And so they continue through the story, and we see shepherds showing up, shepherds coming and confirming that they are indeed on the right track, that this is a special child, that he is the Messiah. He is the one who will come and bring his kingdom. And it is an incredible idea how we see God using average people like you and me, average people like shepherds. The lower part of the social totem pole, if you will, the, the lower social class, and, and yet he uses them. He, he is the one, he, they are the ones that God speaks to and entrusts with a message. And so that leads us to the last part of chapter 2. And so we'll read at verse 21, and we'll begin reading here. Okay. Oh, hi. Yeah, I don't know what's happening there. Is everything okay, Alex? Okay. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> don't be distracted. <laughs> Verse 21, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed... Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated 
to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, this is, uh, this is a time, a moment where, where Luke is painting a picture for us of Mary and Joseph. And it's interesting that he includes this bit of information because what he is essentially saying is that this Mary and Joseph, they are devout. They are committed to God. They are committed to His plan and His purpose, and they're committed to obedience. And as they obey the law, as they obey what they should do as good Jewish people, then they, they, they participate at the temple, uh, and they, they, go do, they, they present sacrifices. And so they're obedient, they're devout, they love God. And so they're, they're, they're not just... It's interesting how sometimes in, in our faith, sometimes we look forward to what's new and we... And we, we turn our back on what's been done. I don't think that's a healthy position. One of the reasons we do a creed and one of the reasons we sing hymns around here and one of the reasons that we reach back into history and worship the way that Christians have worshipped for a thousand years, two thousand years, is that we want to make sure we're rooted in history. We, we honor what has come before us that we didn't arrive here on our own, that we are a part of a big story. We're a part of what God has been doing, and He has been doing new things all throughout history. Are you with me? So we reach back, and we make sure that we stand on the shoulders of great men and women who have served God, and then we reach forward into an incredible future, into the newness, and it's so fitting that we should read this passage here at this final Sunday of 2010, one year ago, I didn't live in this city. It's amazing what a year can bring. I was, I, I, in fact, one year ago today, I was speaking at New Life Church, which is our sending church in Colorado Springs, and I spoke a message called Creative, or Creative, <laughs> Courageous, also Creative, Courageous Footprints. And it was about Joshua, and it was about taking steps into new territory. And to be sitting here on the last Sunday of 2010 and see all that God has done and to be looking out here at you in this dirty, stinky movie theater. I couldn't have imagined that we'd be here. When I came to, to Austin, when I came to this city nine months ago, one thing that I said was, I don't want to plant in a church in a movie theater. I've been to some church plants and movie theaters. It's awful. And here we are. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can't always predict what it's going to look like. What you must do is honor the past, be obedient to what is right in front of you, and look forward to the future full of faith that Jesus is in charge, that God is in control. This is what we see Mary and Joseph doing. This is what we see them engaging in. God is doing something new. It's incredible. And yet they continue to be guided by what they know, by where they've been. So we continue with the story. Verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So moved by the Spirit, 
he went into the temple courts. It's amazing how Luke, who writes, who's writing this book to people, he's painting this picture, and he's, a lot of it's happening around the temple. It began around the temple. We're here at the temple again. We visit the temple at the end of the book. Over and over again, Jesus, his stories come from the place of the temple, the place where God was doing something, where he was speaking. Here we see Simeon, and he is in the temple. This scripture says, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for gl glory to your people, Israel. I want you to underline, if you have a little pen, I want you to underline that little sentence right there. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You can just see this old man. You can see the picture. He's there in the temple. He's worshiping God. He's faithful. And he had an agreement with God. He had a promise from God that he would not die before he saw the consolation of Israel, or we could say it this way, the comfort of Israel. We could see Israel be comforted from all of its trials and its difficulties. You could see its deliverance coming. And so he holds this baby. He's moved by the Spirit, and he takes this little child in his arms. And you can see it. It's happening to him. He realizes this is the one. This is the Messiah. And he begins to praise God. He begins to lift his voice, and he says, Sovereign Lord, you promised me this, and now I'm ready to go home. That's how I want to go home, by the way. Don't you? I want to go home at a ripe old age, and I want to have seen the promises of God, and I want to say, God, I'm ready to go home. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. What this is saying is it's not just for the Jewish people. It is not just for the people in that temple. It is not just for the people who've been called and lived through Israel's history. It is for all people. God is doing something new, and He's going beyond what He's done before. And He's making sure that this message is for revelation to the Gentiles. It's revelation to all the people, all the world, and for glory to your people Israel. That means that Israel was going to receive glory from birthing the Messiah. He was going to come from the nation of Israel. It was going to be their glory and their crown. And so Luke is painting this picture of how the Messiah comes. Verse 33 says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. <laughs> it's so interesting. All through the story, as angels appear to them, as shepherds show up and say, an angel appeared to us. As, as, as Joseph is laying and has a dream and an angel appears. Every time it happens, every time something new is said, there's this little, there's this little parenthetical description. And it is, and Joseph just marveled. They were like amazed. They were like in awe. I tell you, one of the things I want for your life and for my life is we have a lot of mundane that we live in. 
I mean, we do. It's just part of, I got, you got you to clean the bathrooms, right? Okay, you got to take out the trash. We have to work hard. We have to be good stewards of what we have. But you know what? I want to look at 2011. I want to look forward, and I want to consider how we might live in a state of amazement and awe at what God is doing. I want to look for what Jesus is doing, and I want to see it. And when I see it, I want to, I'm going to be like, can you believe this? Can you believe what's happening? Kind of like what's happening to me right now. The final Sunday of 2010, I look up here, and all these people, bunch of people that I didn't know, I didn't know you six or seven months ago, and here we are, God is putting us together as a family. God is gathering us together as a group of people to do something special. And, and, and we're part of the greater body of Christ in Austin. There are people doing good work here, and God has called us together with them because He has a plan for this city. Amen. I assure you, He has a plan for the city of Austin. He's gathering His people together, not just for their sakes, but for all people, for people of every stage, for people of every station. But it's not coming exactly as they thought it would. Verse 34 says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Ominous words. Almost a darkness to them. The falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thought, thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Wow. What this means is that God's word to them says there is something amazing that's going to happen. You will, want, you will be in awe and wonder at what God does through this child. And yet there will be suffering involved. There will be suffering involved. Now that doesn't make sense to me. I don't want God to say, hey, I got great stuff for you. Oh, by the way, there's going to be suffering involved. That's not the gospel I signed up for. And yet we see here in this story, it becomes very personal, personal for Mary. Mary receives this word, and, he's, and, and, and Simeon says, a sword will pierce your soul as well. What we see is that Jesus is coming. But he's not coming just to avoid all suffering. He's actually coming to engage in our suffering with us. There's something really important about this because Jesus comes. He doesn't come to eliminate our suffering. He comes to join us in our suffering. He comes to be with us in our suffering. In fact, he comes to suffer himself. And this is what Simeon is tapping into. Simeon is speaking what is to come, what's going to happen. Now, there's no doubt that what God is doing many times through suffering is, through, for our, is, is, is working for our own good. But I want you to see this. Turn over your Bibles to, to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And I just want you to look over there. Philippians 3. It was here just a few minutes ago. There it is. 
Philippians 3, verse 10. This is a famous passage. It says, I want to know Christ. I, I like that prayer. How about you? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And that's kind of where we like to stop. Yeah, power of his resurrection. Woo! All right, that's enough. Let's just cut that other part out. Did anybody have some scissors? But the power of his resurrection, but and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And then this little sentence that I think is so illuminating, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul understood something here. He understood how the world works. He understood God's plan. That some, from time to time, because this is earth and not heaven, where God's will is perfectly done, that we will suffer. He also understands that there is a role for suffering in the scriptures, that God works character and hope into us through, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that there's something really powerful that happens. It is only if there is death to your flesh, to who you are, that there can be a resurrection. When Jesus joins you in your suffering, you receive the grace and the strength to overcome, to, be, to become resurrected, to become full of life. When you give, up, you give up your own self, when you die to yourself, just as the Apostle Paul said here, he says, sharing with him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow, it's a mystery how it happens, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. God's life being birthed in us. That's what I want. Life's too hard on its own. Life's too hard by itself. Without Jesus, without the resurrection life that comes inside of me, I, can, I don't think I can make it. And so here we see, turn back to Luke chapter 2. Here we see Mary, it's becoming very personal for her. Verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. So she'd been a widow a long, long time. And she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. A second confirmation. Simeon, a priest, a man, an old man of God. Anna, a prophet, coming and, and, and praying. A widow who, would, who was committed to God and lived in, practically lived in the temple, praying and fasting, looking for the redemption of Israel, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is a different kingdom indeed that Jesus is bringing, that's ushering in, that Luke is painting for us. A different kingdom, not a kingdom that is, that is necessarily a conquering kingdom on the face of it, although there will be conquering. But it's, but it's something more subversive. It's something that's different than they would have, than they would have realized. Both these, this prophet and this priest have been looking for the Messiah. 
Luke is painting a picture of confrontation, of inviting us to watch the prophecies come to pass as we read through the book of Luke, to feel the struggle of Mary, to identify with her struggle and what, what, what she's living through, and to see the rise and the fall of the hopes of so many in the nation of Israel. And so this is a revelation to the nations and a glory to Israel. But here's the thing. Luke wants us to know that this message is for everyone. I want you to notice here we've, we've gone through like five or six passages, but here's what Luke is painting a picture of. An older couple without a son. A younger couple with a son much earlier than anticipated. <laughs> Lowbrow shepherds entrusted with a message and, and well-respected and revered priests and prophets all experiencing the same thing. Luke wants to draw readers of every age and stage of life into this picture. No matter who you are or where you are, the story of Jesus from the feeding trough of Bethlehem into the, to the tomb, the empty tomb and beyond can become your story, become my story. Mary and Joseph experienced this confirmation and Luke tells us, he finishes this passage, he says, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The grace of God was on him. I want to tie the next story together with this story, so let's keep reading, all right? Keep reading in the, in the passage here. Verse 41 says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So Jesus has been growing in wisdom and the grace of God on him, and he's a child, and, 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 he's, and he's growing up, and it must have been so weird for Mary, all these stories, all these things. And, you know, you wonder, did Jesus ever fight with anybody on the playground? It's like a very interesting thing. So God's spirit is on him. There's something special about the child. But he went through a certain amount of normal life, I believe. And I think this, this next story shows it to us, all right? So it, it's, it's interesting. As, as Luke unfolds this story, he's giving us a picture that, that is not the picture we might have expected. But I think it is a picture that is instructive and helpful for us. He says here, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast, according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him. Him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is a crazy story to me. Okay, the first thing we got to notice is, how did it happen that they let they went to they went to Jerusalem and then they're leaving Jerusalem, going back home, and they don't know he's with them? <laughs> okay, now it's hard for us to understand because the filter that we look through is our 21st modern kind of Western century American America picture. We, we, we got to see that there was a, a very much a communal living. There was uh, aunts and uncles and neighbors and friends and family members and this whole caravan that was going. Some, sometimes, um, you know, some Bible scholars, they would say if they made this trek to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they would travel together in separate groups. Sometimes the men were required to go. The women were not always required, were not necessarily required to go. So it could be that the men were f traveling together and then the women together and then the children even in a separate place or women and children together. They don't know for sure, but there was a, there's a process by which they all trusted one another. Kind of long for that today, don't we? 
Here's what I want. Here's what I want. I want one chapel to be a place that functions like that. I want one chapel to be a place where we know each other well enough that we know our families, that our kids know each other, that, our, that we live life together, that we experience the trust that only occurs with long-term relationships. You know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for if I were to come here and stay for three or four years and then go on to another assignment. I, I understand there's a certain perspective that certain denominations have that that works for them. I don't think it works for relationships because it's only about three or four years in that you really know me and I really know you because you've seen me go through enough life cycles now that you can really trust. You can start predicting what I'm going to do. I can, and it's only when I live that long with you that I can begin to predict what you're really going to do. And so a lot of churches, a lot of ministry happens in two and four year increments, and it's not good because just about the time you're ready to dig into the hard stuff, just about the time you're starting to develop a relationship that's deep and meaningful and trusting and deal with the really hardcore issues of your history and your life, the wounds inside your soul that you'll only show really good friends, about the time you're ready to hit that and deal with it, they move on. That doesn't work. We've got to be committed to long-term relationships. We've got to be committed to a group of people that will work together for the kingdom of God. Now, here's the problem. As soon as you commit to a group, you're going to figure out how weird they are. Because <laughs> there are no perfect churches. <laughs> and so there's, there must be this, this sense of God birthing you into a family and that family then becomes extended and you begin to live life with that family and you begin to develop trust and invest. And I, that's, what I, that's the vision that I want for One Chapel. That's the vision I want. And it'll have to be pockets because as we grow, you're never going to be able to know everybody. As the church grows, there's no way for us to know all, all the people who may be uh, attending this church. But there must be a way. There must be a way for you to have a group of people that live life with you and you live life with them. You know what, One Chapel, one of my goals You've heard me say it a couple of times maybe, but I'll say it again. It is my goal that no one can come to one chapel more than six weeks and stay anonymous. There's no way to come here and be here four or five weeks and not have somebody who's met you and knows you and connects to you. And if that's happened to you, come and talk to me right after church. Because I don't want you to be anonymous. I don't want you to be alone and isolated. I don't want you to be friendless. I want you to be connected. That was a good little sermon. So here we are, so here we are, we see this picture, and they're going to, to Jerusalem, and they're going to celebrate the Passover, but then they lose him. He's out, <laughs> they've lost Jesus. <laughs> just, just like a few weeks ago when I talked about losing Jesus around our house, you know, our little nativity set, they've lost Jesus. So, they're, they, they, so they, they leave, they're on, so they're on their way back, so it's three days by the time they're, they're really trying to look for him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I couldn't find my 12-year-old for three days, I would be freaking out. And then they finally find him. So they've, so, they've, so they've gone back one day. They realize he's not there. Then they have to go back the next day. So another day travel. And then they're looking for him for a day. That's three days. It's an amazing process. And finally, they find him. And I don't know if you've ever lost your kid and found them in the grocery store or something. It's so crazy. You're like, have that panic. Like, first is panic. <gasps> and, then, and then you're looking and you're frantic. And then finally, you find them and you hug them. Oh, 
And then what's your next thing? Don't you ever do that again. What's wrong with you? Mary does the same thing. Watch. Everyone, <laughs> after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. One more time, astonished. Not necessarily for the same reasons they were astonished before, but they were astonished once again to see God speaking through this child. Look, here's what happens to us. We, we do get used to just normal life. You've got to look. God is doing something in people all around you. You've got to watch. You've got to be aware. You've got to be listening. You've got to see it. Jesus was living with them, and yet they didn't see it. They kind of got used to it. And it took this little event for them to be astonished again. And here it is. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Why have you treated your mother this way? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You know, it's backwards, isn't it? It really should have been, I'm so sorry we left you. I'm so sorry that we, that we left without you. We didn't even check for you. We just thought you were there. <laughs> Verse 49, why were you searching? <laughs> Jesus, well, look at, his, look at his response. This is awesome. Why were you searching for me? He, sa- he asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It's a, it's a, it's a gentle rebuke, isn't it? It's like it's just a little gentle rebuke. You, you, you should have known where I was. I mean, aren't you the one that told me the story of the angels? You, you certainly know that they would have talked about it. You certainly know that he would have known the history, the story of who he was, of how it came about, of seeing the angels, of the shepherds. He, was, he, he said to them, didn't, didn't you know I would have to be here? I mean, you're the one who told me the stories. It's interesting Verse 50 says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Notice that little phrase. If you have a little pen, you should should underline that because that's a big deal right there. Then he went down to Nazareth with them. So he left with them. He's there at the temple. He's enjoying being in his father's house. And he leaves with them. He goes to Nazareth and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She pondered these things. It is quite likely that this story was passed by Mary to Luke or through another to Luke from Mary. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now here's what I think. You know this little statement that, G- that Jesus says to Mary, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? It's a little bit of a stinger. And she would remember, she would ponder it years later. It would stick with her. She would remember it. Mary would have easily remembered this statement for years to come. It's a moment in time. 
When we look at what child is this, what is this child? He was a 12-year-old child. But listen, he was, he was learning how to be who God wanted him to be. Now, this is, this is a little tricky here, so I want you to listen carefully to me. Is everybody okay? We're almost done. We're at the end. Sit up in your chair. I know, it's gotten real comfortable, hasn't it? It's like, yeah. It's really amazing. Jesus was 12. All of you who have 12-year-olds, <laughs> you know the difficulty around that age, the dynamic. They're not good at being humans yet. They've only been doing it for 12 years. Okay, so they're, so they're getting better at it. Jesus is the perfect son of God, 100% God, 100% man. So he is without sin learning obedience. Even now, even here. He is learning obedience. He was awakened enough to know that he needed to be in his father's house at 12. Could it be that he's... Could it be that he left, snuck away from the caravan? Could it be that he just wandered off, didn't really know how to manage this thing with uh, parents, you know? Uh, I got my father, and then I got these things called parents. <laughs> it's just like that for you and me. We learn how to be obedient to our father by learning to obey in the situation we find ourselves in. It's very difficult for some people to go through Christmas because they're difficult memories, painful losses. But it is true, no matter what we go through, no matter what happens in our lives, we, these things in our lives that are difficult, that even cause suffering, that even cause difficulty, they are the things that God wants to breathe into, that He wants to be with you in. And He wants to help you learn how to be obedient. Jesus probably didn't need necessarily need. I don't, I don't know how to qualify or quantify that term because he was 100% God, okay, 100% man. Okay, so there's a, myst there's a little bit of mystery in there, but I suspect that he was learning about who he was and who God had made him to be at 12 years old. And the next, next 15, 17 years, 18 years, by the time he turned 30, he was learning obedience. He was learning a craft. He was learning how to be a good steward. He was learning how to be productive. He was learning how to do what God had sent him to do. Be a part of a family. Engage. Now here's the thing. Mary and Joseph, we can easily identify with them. Mary and Joseph, perhaps Jesus as well as we look at this story, Jesus quietly asserting himself in his independence and at the same time living in obedience to his earthly parents. We need to consider here in this moment, here at this, at this day after Christmas, looking at the past and looking at this next year, we need to consider whether or not we have taken Jesus for granted. Maybe treated his presence too casually. Maybe thinking, oh, he, I'm sure he's there. If Mary and Joseph could take him for granted, there's every reason to suppose that we can, too. But Jesus wants to be there. Jesus is with us. And he, we, we got to be careful that we don't get up and leave without him. That we are aware of him as we look to the new year. 
We should not assume that he is accompanying us as we go off on our own business. But if and when we sense the lack of his presence, we must be prepared to hunt for him like we would our own children or trying to find something that is very valuable and precious to us. We must search for him in prayer, in the scriptures, in our sacraments, in church, not giving up until we find him again. Here's the interesting thing. We must also expect that when we do find him, he will most likely not say or do what we expect. (laughs) That it will be unique to us. It will be unique to our experience. He must be busy with his father's work and so should we. As we say goodbye to 2010, I want you to consider how you might be more about your father's business how we could be obedient to what God wants us to do in the situation that we find ourselves in, that we would be careful, that we would be very, very aware of his presence or the lack of it, that we would not get used to things as they are, but we would be able and willing to be astonished, to be in awe, to be amazed, that we would be attentive to Jesus to what he wants from us. I think there's a bunch, a bunch of things God wants to do. I'm pretty excited about this next year. We're going to go, we're going we're gonna to make a commitment here at the first of the year to pray and fast for 21 days. And you, you will t- I'll talk about it next week. I'm going to kind of tell you about how we're going to do it and what we're going to do and how we're going to gather together. We're going to start on the 9th and we're going to go to the 30th. And that means we're going to consecrate ourselves to God's purpose and plan. It's going to be the first thing that we do in January as a church. We're going to allow him to work in our lives, to take us from where we are to where he wants us to be, to help us to learn how to be obedient. And so I want you to join with me in that because I believe there is such freedom in it. There is such power in it. I want you to consider what you might give up for this season, what you might give up for those 21 days, whether it's food, a certain type of food. Broccoli doesn't count. But, <laughs> but also, but, but also a, a, an item. You might give up television. You might give up uh, social media. Oh, Lord, no. Can't give up social media. But... But, but you might give up something and, and allow God to speak to you in making space for him. I'm excited about this. I'm excited about digging in in the first of the year and going for it. So um, I, I think there's so much in store, but we, you and me, you and I, we must be ready. We must be careful, listening, open, obedient. We must be attentive. It will not come as we might think it will. It will come in the, in the everydayness. It will come in an everyday gospel package. It will come in a way that we didn't expect. However, it will be good. It will be wonderful if Jesus is in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just making us think, making us evaluate, helping us to see the bigger picture and the bigger story. Lord, thank you for helping us to understand that that your grace is available to us, that your presence is here. Help us not to go off and leave you. Help us, Lord, that when we find ourselves in situations that we didn't expect, that we don't turn away from you, but we turn to you. 
that we look to you. We want to learn like Jesus did to be obedient. We want to be more aware of you as we go into 2011. We want to be, we want to be the kind of people that embrace you at every turn, in every situation. No matter what our station, no matter what our age, no matter what our, um, our affiliation with others, no matter what we're connected to, no matter, no matter how much money we have or don't have, no matter what kind of work we do, we want to be attentive to you and we want you to be in the middle of where we are. So the first thing I want to pray about this morning is I want to pray for those of you who feel like you're in the midst of a difficult moment and, and you're just, the Christmas season has been hard and you just, you just have had difficulty relying on Jesus and you just want him to, to come. You just want to surrender to him and you just want to be soothed by his peace and his comfort all over the room if that's you just just raise your hand just 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 a little yep I see you I see you yep anybody else anybody else this is just I just yep I see you up there anybody else just raise your hand just kind of point it up to him yep I see you brother let's pray let's pray that the Lord will give you his grace and his mercy and his peace Father I pray that you would touch these who have expressed their, their hearts. and Father, the difficulty of the Christmas season comes in all kinds of ways, all kinds of packages. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come with your peace and your great courage, your great encouragement. Somehow, your, your great grace and favor, would you let it rest upon them today? Father, would you help them to see things from your perspective and not from their own? Would you help change their vision? Would you turn them from looking down to looking up? Would you change their hearts? Help them to be attentive to you and to what you're saying to them. Those who have been longing for you to come, like Simeon and Anna, would you, would you minister to them? Would you touch them? Would you show yourself? Would you reveal who you are? And Lord, we pray for all of us in this room. Lord, that we would not be the kind of people that would go on about our business and forget you. Keep us amazed. Keep us in awe. Help us to look. Help us to watch carefully. Help us, Lord, to see the picture that Luke is painting here in the, in the scriptures. Lord, that you are interested in every one of us, no matter who we are. And that you're interested in this city, the city of Austin, no matter who they are no matter where they find themselves. And you've entrusted us with a message of this great peace and this great hope. Give us strength and courage to speak it without hesitation. To do what you've called us to do, to be obedient to you, to be obedient to your word and to your plan so that we can be amazed once again in awe of what you're doing. Finally here this morning, if you're here and you've, not been following Christ. Maybe you've been away from him for a long time, but you've come to church today and you want to commit your life to him. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Maybe you've never committed your life to Christ. Maybe you've never decided to give your life to God or 
surrender to his plan or purpose for your life. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. And so if you've come with family or friends, I want to give you a chance to say yes to Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to God's plan. If your plan's not working out, it's not working for you, God's plan is better. And he wants you. He wants you to come to him. He wants to come to you. And so if you haven't followed Jesus ever, or maybe you haven't followed him in a long time, if you want to follow him today, if you want to commit your life to Christ, just lift your hand up in the air. I won't call you forward. I'm not going to call you down here. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to lift it up as a sign. Yep, is there anyone? Anyone? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your strength, your grace in this season. Thank you, thank you, thank you for faithfulness in our lives. Thank you for the incarnation that Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to be aware. Help us to be attentive. Help us to embrace everything that he's doing, everything that you're doing, everything that the Spirit wants to do and speak to us as we turn to this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The last thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to give of our tithes and offerings. And so if you'd prepare to do that, um, one of the things that I'm so excited about is we've, during this Christmas season, we gave away a whole bunch of gifts to ministries here in town and to missionaries. And I'll be giving you a little report about that in January. And uh, all that we've done and all that we've been able to do because of your faithful giving, uh, it's an incredible opportunity when we pool our resources together and, uh, and then we have uh, something to give to people in need. We surprised some people with, uh, with gifts from the church this last week and it was really awesome to see that and witness that. And so um, I believe this is a storehouse. It needs to be trustworthy. It's, a, it's an act of worship when you give money to God, but it, I think is, it is a meaningful act of worship because finances are one of the things that grips our hearts. And so we give in an offering not because of duty, not because we have to, not because we, we're just investing, but because we worship Jesus with everything that we have and everything that we are. And so would you stand up with me and let's pray together and let's give our tithes and our offerings together and honor the Lord as we worship. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for the message of Christmas. We thank you for the message of life. We thank you for the wonder of who you are and how you work. We're in awe of you. We love you. We bless you. We honor you. We give to you. Expand it. Use it for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's worship the Lord as we give.